an extrovert, and a ladies' man. He is also an opportunist and a liberal on the side. Most conspicuously he is a thin, a muscleless free-fall phenomenon whose home is the sack circling the moon, and who can only support life in Earth gravity condi. Tyons by encasing himself in a titanium exoskeleton. To the inhabitants of the ravaged post-World War III Earth, he looks outlandish, even sinister. To their women he looks attractive. Earth looks equally odd to Scully. The uneasy truce brought about by the exhaustion of radioactive material has left the United States only partly inhabitable and wholly dominated by Texas. In fact there is no USA, only Greater Texas. And a Greater Texas demands Greater Texans. Hormone treatment has turned Texans into giants and their mechs. Slaves into unhappy dwarves resentful of their fate and ripe for revolution. To the Mixes, Scully is a sign, a talisman, a leader. To Scully, the Mixes are a cause, their superstitious awe of him bringing his actor's vanity to the aid of his humanitarian impulses and forcing him to take the role they thrust upon him. Besides, there are women in the case. This is a remarkable novel of satiric imagination. Fritz Leiber, one of America's top writers of imaginative fiction, has produced a caricature of the future as lively, chilling, and ultimately serious of purpose as a Pfeiffer cartoon. A specter is underscore haunting Texas by Fritz Leiber Walker and Company Carrot New York, N5Q. Copyright Copyright 1968 by Galaxy Publishing Corporation. All rights reserved. No part of this book may be reproduced or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic or mechanical, including photocopying, recording, or by any information storage and retrieval system, without permission in writing from the publisher. All the characters and events poirated in this story are fictitious. First published as a book in the United States of America in 1969 by Walker & Company, a division of the Walker Publishing Company, Inc. Published simultaneously in Canada by the Ryerson Press, Toronto. First published in Galaxy Science Fiction in 1968. Library of Congress Catalog Card Number, 6913140. Printed in the United States of America. J. Table of Contents 1. Terrible Terra 2. Dallas, Texas, Texas 3. Governor's Ranch 4. Rachel Batchel 5. President's Man 6. In Church 7. 8. In the Cemetery The Invisible Prison 9. In the pool 10, 11, riding the whirlwind in the coal mine 12, 13, slum stoning the gusher 14, 15, 16, salty nosh death, with spiders fixing 17. A hundred years later 1-1-6-3-3-5-1-6-7-7-9-9-8-1-2-0-1-3-3-1-4-4-1-6-5-1-7-8-1-9-1-2-0-7-2-2-1-2-3-0-2-4-2. Fruitful plains, waving with amber grain, <coughs> thornless cactus, the pseudopods of nutritious amoebas, and lone star flags. Ever since Lyndon ousted Jack in the early atomic age, the term of a president of Texas has been from inauguration to assassination. Murder is merely the continuation of politics by other means. Power ennobles, but petroleum power ennobles absolutely. The end of life is liberty. Texans are empowered to enjoy, exploit, and handle liberty, while McSez, Injuns, and Nigras, all those having dark faces or a dark hole in their pocketbooks, have the privilege of serving liberty and keeping their hands off it. Ego was made to be used. It rises from the dark unconscious, energizes awareness, and transforms society. It is the oil fields of the human personality. Longhairs have less brains than longhorns, and less ability to stand on their own hind legs. Most long hairs perished in the atomic war, or were exiled. 
to that sick cow corral, circumluna, and her unspeakable udder, the sack. Praise the Lord and puff the marijuana. The battles of the Alamo, San Jacinto, El Salvador, Sioux City, Schenectady, and Saskatchewan. Random excerpt from How to Stand and Understand Texans, their fantasies, foibles, folkways, and fixed ideas is seen in their own writings, Nitty Gritty Press, Los Angeles, Asafik Payak Blay Publicre, Son, you look like a Texan what got the hormone, but been starved since birth. Like your ma, Lyndon bless her. Lifted a leg and dropped you into a big black bag, and after you nothing but a crust and a mini carton of milk once a month. True enough, noble sir. I was raised in the sack and I am a thin, I answered the portly giant in a voice like distant thunder, which almost made me wet my tights, B. Cause up until this moment of my life I had been a high baritone. My senses told me I was whirling at a punishing six lunagrabs in a large cubicle centrifuge. In fact, I could see the spinning and feel it in my inner ears until my senses gradually adjusted. On the same surface as I were too. Giants and a giantess in cowboy costumes and also three barefoot, hunchbacked, swarthy dwarfs in dirty shirts and pants. They were all poised expertly on their feet, riding the centrifuge with Elon. While under my black hood and cloak I was doubled up like a large bone and titanium lazy tongs, trying to make the left knee motor of my exoskeleton. Behave, it either hunted wildly or wouldn't respond at all to the myoelectric impulses from the ghost muscles of my left leg. I realized that the portly giant must have seen me without my cloak, which now might be hiding an erect short fat as readily as a folded tall thin. I was hazy about how T.D. debarked from the Siolkovsky. When the long hairs dope you to take accelerations of 24 lunagraphs, they don't use aspirin, even when you're sandwiched between water mattresses. But I knew that outside the centrifuge lay the spaceport and city of Yellowknife, Canada, Terra. The centrifuges two ends and two adjoining sides but which were which, were covered with a child's simple mural of huge chalk white cowboys on horses like elephants chasing tiny lipstick red Indians on ponies like chihuahua dogs across a cactus studded landscape. This battle of cockroaches and behemoths was signed with a huge grandma Aaron. The figures and scene seemed as inappropriate for frosty yellow knife as my companions. Costumes, which should have been parkas and snowshoes. But who is a greenhorn, who has HBED all his life in free fall a few thousand miles from Mother Luna, to pronounce on the customs of terrible Terra? The opposite surface was crowded with dazzling sunbursts, like a star cluster going nova. In one of the adjoining surfaces were two rectangular openings side by side. Each was three feet wide, but one was more than ten feet long, the other less than five. I peered into them in vain to see stars or sections of Terra whipping past, but the rectangles were only Hatch's lead into another part of the centrifuge. Why there were two, and so different in shape and size, where one would have done, I couldn't imagine. As I tried to coax my knee motor properly alive and felt the six centrifugal lunagraphs cruelly press the support bands of my exoskeleton into my skin and bones at armpits, thighs, crotch, etc., I asked myself, if this is what they use to toughen you up for Terra, what will Terra's naked surface be like? Meanwhile, I spoke aloud in the same almost inaudibly deep voice from Grave, which indeed fitted my appearance of a black shrouded burial mound with the central bump of my hooded head. I asked, kindly direct me to the Yellowknife Registry of Mining Claims. The portly giant regarded me with benign interest. That one really rode the centrifuge with serenity, I marveled at his ability to handle so casually a mass at least five times my own with exoskeleton. The three shoulder-bent dwarfs. 
peered apprehensively from close behind him, fear frowns furrowing their low foreheads under their greasy black hair. The square giant, I called him that because he was all sharp shoulder and jaw angles, like William S. Hart of ancientist cinema, glanced up suspiciously from my open luggage. The giantess went into a tizzy. There you go again, she whined. I try to hostess you the best one can. After all, you're our first visitor from space. In a hundred years. But you keep booming at me like all the rest of them fearful furry Russians and drumming Afric foreigners. And you keep booming mysteries. Where in the name of Jack is Yellowknife? She had long yellow hair outside and big tits, or their simulacra, inside her quasi-military, mini-skirted cowgirl costume, but her fluttery stupidity was flattening my libido as well as my sanity. I recalled my father telling me that drum majorettes had been one of the chief ruinations of Terra, along with female-clad communist athletes of whichever sex. Here, I thunder-rumbled from my hood. Right here, where the Tsiolkovsky debarked me on direct orbit from Circumluna. Incidentally, FM not Russian, but of Anglo-Hispanic ancestry, though it's true there are as many Russians as Americans in Circumluna. The Tchaikovsky debarked you all right, in a stretcher, in case you've forgotten, and all wrapped up in that black blanket, like a candidate for a coffin. Say, what are Americans? Ancient greasers. But what I mostly meant to ask you was, where do you think here is? Tsiolkovskite I thunder corrected. My new double bass voice we is making me nasty. Great space pioneer, not gay composer of slurpy music. And Americans. A-M-E-R-I-C-A-N-S. While here, I thunder crashed, is Spaceport Yellowknife, Northwest Territory, Canada, Terra. Name of Jack and Jackie, she wailed, clapping her hands to her ears. Where and what is Canada? The square giant looked up again and asked ominously, Stranger, why does your luggage consist chiefly of 47 isotopic and lithium gold batteries of the sort used in portable power weapons? Their spares for my exoskeleton, I tossed him, while at the giantess I rumbled scornfully, don't they teach you any geography on this planet? You a space hostess, it's you don't know geography, she whimpered back at me, still holding her ears. Up there in space, jumping from star to star and never caring which. Gun you, your mock. Ing me cry, you animated black laundry basket. Whereupon very large tears did begin to plop from the inner corners of her blue eyes. If only the centrifuge would stop, I thought. I could no longer see spin, but I was whirling inside. Stranger, what class of weapon is an exoskeleton? The square giant demanded, his mouth and eyes thinning to SHTS. And watch your language when conversing with a cultured lady. You'll find out when you're kicked by one. I snarled, meaning faithful old titanium, not that female boob. Cultured lady, I continued zestfully, cultured in an algae vat. You yeast brain, how can you and that right-angle cowpoke mention culture when you confuse satellites with stellar furnaces, don't know where Canada is, don't understand the needs of a thin visiting a solar gravity satellite, and are unfamiliar with well-known prosthetic devices? The giantess began to blubber. The fright frowns deepened and rose in the dwarf's foreheads, their greasy hair stirred, and their flight muscles tightened. The square giant whipped from his belt a lightning pistol I knew could numb or fry me, according to how much power he used. He took a step toward me and barked, hand over that exoskeleton, stranger, without you cock it. And whatever other weapons you're hiding under that black serape, everything down to hatpins and penknips is confiscated at the Republic's borders, you'll get claim checks. But don't make any sudden movements. The tension sizzled. I stayed squat crouched under my cloak and prepared to spit more insults from my hood. In. 
fact, something violent might well have happened, most likely to me, if the portly giant hadn't intervened. That one said in resonant, relaxed tones that muffed not a word, I'd been suspecting he was a fellow actor, simmer down, all of you, for Lyndon's sake, that secular saint of peace. There's been some natural mistakes made in. Some natural tempers roused. Bill, go easy with that shock. Spitter, and Susie, sweetheart, dry your tears and unsnuffle that cute HTTLE nose of yours. Scully, he addressed me, Scully, for that's what you look like from what I can glimpse of your face, a sort of sensitive featured skull. No offense intended. My own handles Elmo and I'm as fat as and got a face like a hog. Crossbred with a hyena. But well, Scully, I'm afraid that they truly didn't teach you quite all of modem geography up there in the sky. Yep, there's a few things that been happening here and there on this little old planet during the century you've been sailing around the moon in your ivory. Tower with its attendant soap bubbles. Because there is a yellow knife, you see, Scully, but now we call it Amarillo Cuchillo, and it's situated in northern Texas. While Canada is a gone land, like Samaria or Burgundy or Vietnam. A cold and dizzy feeling, as if I hadn't been centrifuged dizzy enough, touched me. A feeling of history altering. Like the colors in a kaleidoscope and no patch of reality shore. I already knew, you see, that my father, who taught me everything, was weak on recent Terran geography and history, though expert in historical dramas and overall theory, he would wave at Spengler's dog-eared accordion upine decline of the West floating by our book rack, then through the curving wall of the sack at Terra splendid against the stars, and say, they are all fellahin down there, Christopher, all of them. Fellahin swarming like moths over the embers of dead cultures. Ah, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. What is moths? A picturesque and even ego. Inflating generality, especially to one living a quarter of a million miles or so from Earth, but admittedly weak on details. And now at last I was learning just how weak. I looked up apprehensively at Elmo as the portly giant continued, and I'm afraid, Scully, that the Russo-Yankee O'Flicers of the Siolkovsky are a little feeble on modern politico-geography too, because where they landed you. Namely, here, is some 2,000 miles south of Amarillo Cuchillo. Scully, my friend, you have the honor of being in Dallas, Texas, Texas, the heart of the human universe and the golden laurel crown of her culture. Texas includes Canada, I asked in a quavering bass is an independent nation. Scully, I hate to voice the least criticism of a man's educational background, shucks, there's been notable brains, monst refugees from New York City College and Berkeley, but I do believe your heavenly geography instructors have been notably remiss and maybe, no offense meant here neither, touched with black or Slavic bias. Scully, son, ever since the Great Texas Ward Industrial Migration and World War III, Texas has extended from the Nicaraguan Canal to the North Pole, including most of Central America, all of Mexico, nearly all of Canada, and all that matters of the Fliberty Gibbet 47, I mean, the former United States of America. That is, at present, we Texans might take a fancy to extend our boundaries any day. There's Cuba to be reconquered, and Indochina, and Ireland, and Hawaii, and hither Siberia. But on the whole, we Texans are a peaceable, tolerant, shoot-and-let-shoot people. We whipped the Cherokees and the Mexicans and we tied the Russians and Chinese, and were inclined to rest on our laurels, unless, of course, roused, when we get dynamic as an automated cotton-picking rig goosed by the program for an Irish jig. But as for being independent, let me tell you, Scully my boy, Texas is the goldenest independentest nation in the entire annals of political science. 
Nobody, bar some wise old Helene's, really understood what individual freedom meant until Texas came along. But anyhow, welcome to Texas, Scully, welcome to God's planet. Welcome down. From the vastness of space, F.L. Magatha you know, Scully, there's really more functional space in Texas than there is in the entire twiddling universe of free fall and galaxies and other foolishness. So, in Lyndon's name, lift yourself up from that black heap you're in, boy, and put her here. Now I was sure he was an actor, though of ancient oratorical school. He advanced, followed closely, like timid children, by the swarthy dwarfs, and held out toward me a big open hand. I did not respond, though truly touched by his hammy hospitality. At heart all actors are hams and love it. I was simply too tired and dizzy. For many minutes I had been balancing Hunchet Krusht in a souped-up crazy house of a centrifuge that was making my brain woozy as well as drowning my meager flesh in fatigue poisons. I had been fumbling futilely with tiring fingers at my bakini motor. I had been forcing my aching diaphragm to drag into my burning lungs an atmosphere-like yeast stew flavored with hydrogen sulfide. I had been putting up with rude nonsense from a dithery female and a fake cowboy baggage inspector. I was still groggy from anti-grav drugs and bone-crushing, organ-popping accelerations aboard the Tsiolkovsky. I had become deadly sick of Tara while they were still getting me ready for her. So now this news that FD been stranded 2000 gravity paved miles from my destination was the last weight, you might say, in my centrifuge training belt. The centrifuge in Circumluna only builds up to two lunagravs. And road weighted my exoskeleton to make it near Earth grav. My unfolded handle is Elmo oil field herb, lineal descendant of the noted gunslinger, the portly giant coaxed. What's yours, Scully? At that instant a second female waltzed into our section of the centrifuge through the shorter of the two side-by-side -side hatches. At sight of her, my spirits skyrocketed as if I'd just got simultaneous shots of speed euphorin in seven different veins or been invited by Idris Mulwraith into her cubicle to help her dress for even Shaw's back to Methuselah or Mary Sparung in Heinlein's Children of Methu. Salah, what is it that some girls have can turn me on, while the yellow-haired, tearful, sincere, big-tit Susies can extinguish me? I know, sex. This new girl was dark, like the hunchback dwarfs, and she wasn't too much more than four feet tall, but she carried herself as if she were ten, her back flagstaff straight, with her glossy black hair for a banner. She had a form like a scaled-down Venus de Milo. She was shod with gleaming black slippers, heels almost as high as her dainty feet were long. A red skirt swirled around her black netted dancer's legs, a yellow blouse bared her coffee and cream shoulders. While her dark eyes snapped bright black light as castanets do bright black sound. I was so taken with her mere looks that I forgot to admire the skill with which she moved gracefully across areas having different acceleration vectors. And then she gave it to me. The eye, I mean. Yes, she halted in mid-twirl and she looked at me, yes, at miserable me, huddled under my cloak like a sick, giant spider monkey, and then her delicious eyes were fixed on my hooded, deep-socketed ones and glowing love into me. While her previously saucy lips were parted in a rapt smile of delight, as if I were the answer to some extremely private dream she'd been having ever since the first downy shiver of puberty. My depression vanished like black magic routed by the white goddess leading a train of nymphomaniac nymphs. What were six lunagraphs? Tara was mine. I was the Count of Monte Cristo, a part one half twice played. 
Still operating wholly under my cloak, I untelescoped slim canes from my titanium exo forearm bones, and with them in my good leg pushed myself erect and then still more erect until my head was on a level with those of the giants. The dwarf's eyes, steadily widening, followed me up. I noted that, although they were of different original heights, the dwarfs were all shoulder bent to an equal four and a half feet, an odd detail. Once fully erect, now I topped the giants by a half head. I pushed down bolts to lock both knee joints of my exoskeleton and stood on my two feet only, my exolegs rigid rods from ankle to hip. Though teetery, it was practical, the taller the object, the easier it is to balance. I quickly retelescoped my canes, had built a square giant. Glimpsed them, he would have surely cried, concealed weapons. Meanwhile Elmo was calling to my best pocket Carmen, well, it's about time, Kuki. You better have those reefers or I'll turn you up and tan your Persian rose petal hide. Oh, Scully, this is La Cucaracha, one of my sociable secretaries. Kuki, this is my bosom friend, Scully, from outer space. Treat him as you would the president of Texas before he went crackers. Ignoring these rude and boisterous, though apparently well-meant remarks, I stepped out swiftly and reached my dark lovely one in three long strides and bowed until my hooded face was level with hers. Considering I had no knees at the time, it was a remarkable performance, putting my black shrouded butt a couple of feet higher than my head. My myoelectricity was tuning my stiff-kneed exoskeleton to perfection. It was truly a grand gesture, executed with ultimate poise and panache. Thrusting a hand from my cloak, I plucked hold of her dainty one as if it were a dark orchid, and it was, ah, velvet-surfaced, manipulative multiwand. Senorita Cockroach Sublima, I rumbled throatily, and even the muted thunder of my rumble didn't phase her, I am Christopher Crockett La Cruz, totally at your service. And I drew the captured bloom into my hood and showered kisses on it. She, in the intervals of a flattered laugh and with much rippling of long black eyelashes, whispered toward my ear in a voice very fast and businesslike, though tender, at moonrise tonight, a motto. At the bandstand corner of the cemetery, querido mio, until, hen, silencior it is the proper function of woman to attend to the practical details of affairs of the heart. Assured by her words that I was not only loved but desired, I put into my obediently whispered, SF, C, C, the hiss of a love-struck micrometeorite whizzing through the self-sang duraplast of one of the eggs forming the sack. Then I returned her hand to her with a flourish, unjackknifed to normal height, and turned toward the others. I felt as if I had just magnificently rendered one of Hamlet's soliloquies or Cyrano's tirades and the applause was about to break from the double-curbing walls of our free fall theater and the sphere in the largest bubble of the sack. An inner voice said, stop your skulking masquerade, Scully Christopher. Show yourself fully to these miserable earthlings and your dainty beloved. With a Dracula batwing swirl, I threw back my black cloak and hood, flashing their scarlet linings, and waited for the gasps of admiration. Susie wailed, holy Halloween, banished her large blue irises upward, and fainted. As he caught her, Bill yelled, what did I tell you? He's got power armor. The three dwarfs jumped backward and I do believe would have dashed in terror from the room except that Elmo reached behind him and neatly collared them, meanwhile scowling at me incredulously. One of the captured dwarfs quavered, lemured Alta. Another gasped, El Espectro. The third stuttered, El Esqueleto. Being called a tall death, a specter, and a skeleton irked me greatly. Niap, a great actor, is most irritating. But before saying anything cutting, anything with acid in it, I put myself in their places and rapidly looked at me. 
They were looking, I discovered, at a handsome, shapely, dramatic featured man, 8 feet 8 inches tall and massing 147 pounds within 97 pounds without his exoskeleton. Except for relaxed tiny bulges of muscle in forearms and calves ladder to work lengthy toes, useful in gripping, this man was composed of skin, bones, liga, ments, fasciae, narrow arteries and veins, nerves, small size, assorted inner organs, ghost muscles, and a big dome skull with two bumps of jaw muscle. He was wearing a skin-tight black suit that left bare only his sunken-cheeked, deep-eyed, beautiful tragic face and big, heavy tendoned hands. This truly magnificent, romantically handsome, rather lean man was standing on two corrugated-soled titanium footplates. From the outer edge of each rose a narrow titanium T-beam that followed the line of his leg, with a joint locked now, at the knee, up to another joint with a titanium pelvic girdle and shallow belly support. From the back of this girdle a T-spine rose to support a shoulder yoke and rib cage, all of the same metal. The rib cage was artistically slotted to save weight, so that curving strips followed the line of each of his very prominent ribs. A continuation of his T-spine up the back of his neck in turn supported a snug, gleaming head basket that rose behind to curve over his shaven cranium, but in front was little more than a jaw shelf and two inward curving cheek plates stopping just short of his somewhat rudimentary nose. The nose is not needed in circumluna to warm or cool air. Slightly lighter T-beams than those for his legs reinforced his arms and housed in their terminal inches his telescoping canes. Numerous black, foam-padded bands attached this whole framework to him. A most beautiful prosthetic, one had to admit. While to expect a thin, or even more a fat, from a free-fall environment to function without a prosthetic on a gravity planet or in a centrifuge would be the ultimate in cornball ignorance. Eight small electric motors at the principal joints worked the prosthetic framework by means of steel cables riding in the angles of the T-beams, much like antique dentists drills were worked, I've read. The motors were controlled by myoelectric impulses from his ghost muscles transmitted by sensitive pickups buried in the foam-padded bands. They were powered by an assortment of isotopic and lithium gold batteries nesting in his pelvic and pectoral girdles. Did this fine man look in the least HKE a walking skeleton? I demanded of myself outraggedly. Well, yes, very much so, I had to admit now that I had considered the matter from the viewpoint of strangers. A very handsome and stylish skeleton, all silver and black, but a skeleton. Nonetheless, and one eight feet eight inches tall, able to look down a little even at the giant Texans around him. I realized now that my anger and my inability to see myself as others see me was because father and mother had found nothing morbid or eerie about me in my new silvery anti-grab prosthetic, nor had the long hairs who had constructed it for me in return for free performances of Hamlet, Macbeth, and Manhattan Project, two jam sessions, and one, Dance of the Seven Bales, by Idris McElwraith, the sax perennial sex star, who is a thin like me and looks like the ancient high fashion model teeny. Twilly, Twiggy, drastically slimmed down, yet has much appeal. I ask her once a month to marry me, but although granting occasional favors, she refuses me on the silly grounds that she is thrice my age. Who dies in free fall? I glanced down at my newer love, the sublime Lakuka. Racha, and she was gazing up at me and my exoskeleton with as fond approval as my parents, and with something spicy added. But when I made to bow to her again and perhaps hear more exciting whispers about our coming rendezvous, she twinkle-toed away, drawing from a fancy pack a long, very thin, pale brownish cigarette. 
Scully Christopher Crockett LaCruz, Elmo meanwhile hailed me from where he stood talking with Bill, while still collaring the three dwarfs. Susie had sat up from her faint and was looking at me with a thin-lipped disapproval that I connected with the attentions I had showered on La Cucaracha. That Crockett's a good Texas handle, Elmo continued. Deepens my friendship for you, boy. Anyhow, Scully, I've been considering your problems. There's a northbound cargo jet loading might lift you to Amarillo Cuchillo, but... She mayn't take off for a week, we Texans conduct our commerce in a relaxed fashion. So Bill here has agreed to release you into my custody, and you and I are going to pay a little visit on the governor of Texas, Texas, and what he can't expedite, nobody else can even budge. Besides, it ain't every day we get a spaceman. Governor bound to want to hear the gossip about the long interdicted lands in the sky. Who can tell, they might turn out to be far-flung fragments of Texas. Scully, you can't refuse, you're going to experience Texas hospitality if I have to tie you up and have my greasers lug you. Now jump for his baggage, you black-hearted little conquistadores, or I'll sell you for cyborgs. He released the three bent backs, while to my darling he called, light me. That stick now, kooky, pronto, or I'll return your wardrobe to the theater man for refund, all but one medieval onion sack. I hate to be pushed around, especially by big brotherly shoves, nor did I care for the language Elmo directed at my new nymph, but his proposition seemed the best for me. Especially since I did not intend to leave Dallas before getting my gravity legs and, Eros and sure, keeping my moon cute rendezvous. For even now as the little one grasped Elmo's wide belt, nimbly vaulted onto his slightly bent huge thigh, and hung the smoldering slim cigarette on his long loose lip, she gave a quick conspiratorial smile and, Eyelash ripple telling of impending raptures. Elmo took a long fluttering inhalation of marijuana vapor, his eyes going first glassy, then fever bright as he called out, now forward hop, you greasers all. Come on, Scully, let's skedaddle. The three dwarfs now each carried a black, silver banded cushion case containing chiefly my food consent. Traits and spare batteries, my winter clothing and wigs. They still snatched fearful glances at me. As I followed Elmo toward the ten-foot door, they marched through the shorter door, each of the three barely missing bumping his head on the HN telephone, while my brunette darling scampered through behind them, her head held high. Why their backs were variously bent, and hers not at all, was instantly clear to me. The enormity of the revelation, plus my hunting for vector changes in the centrifuge's floor and still not finding them, must have caused me to take short, shuffling steps with my temporarily kneeless five-foot legs, for Elmo looked back and exclaimed, Scully, son, you're walking like the first time on stilts or like you got paresis. Maybe. Our Mexican door sort of startled you. It's one of those charming, deeply mused Texan customs that make our glorious way of life possible. You see, Scully, a man can't feel really free unless he's got a lot of underfolk to boss around. That's one of the great paradoxes of liberty, first. Discovered by those proto-Texans, the ancient Greeks, who had slaves to burn, though I don't think they actually burned them much until Nero's day, or maybe the discovery of gasoline, which permitted deep south lynching bees and Buddhist immolations alike. Incidentally, Scully, I'd appreciate it if you'd button up that cloak of yours and resume your hood. McSays are superstitious little buggers. Even when cyborged, their odd primitive fears short-circuit through. I got my three boys calm temporarily, and LeCook's a cool little bitch, but I wouldn't want you causing a riot in Dallas. History. Proves that the first time a man goes down the streets of Dallas, anything can happen to him, frequently bad.
I complied with his suggestion, but made no verbal retort, contenting myself with giving him a grim look, sucking in my cheeks to increase the skull-like appearance of my head, and stepping out after him recklessly. A vigorous paresis, I got to admit, he commented. Ahead of him another pair of doors began to slide open, letting in sunny brightness and flashes of movement, and I braced myself for transition from centrifugal force to gravity. When the scientific, engineering, and paramilitary communities of the international mega-satellite Circumluna were ordered to carry World War III into space, they refused, relying on their charters from the United Nations. In desperation and reprisal, the warring powers below repudiated the United Nations, clapped embargoes on all shipments of food, fuels, metals, medicines, and other supplies to Circumluna, and outlawed their rebellious nationals there. The Circumlunans, who effectually controlled the space fleets and were on the verge of achieving a self-sufficient economy based on raw materials from the moon, declared their independence. This action of the Longhairs was enthusiastically received by the even longer-haired space vagabonds, originally hippies, beatniks, mods. Dropouts, Stilyagi, actors, writers, pachucos, apaches, gypsies, and other quaintly styled rebels, parasitic on or symbiotic with, accounts differed the respectable circumlunans and living in their hive of duraplastic bubble homes pendant on circumluna and known as the sack. For five generations there was no commerce and little communication between Terra and Circumluna, due to the latter's focus on survival and to the cultural upheavals and impoverished economy below after World War III killed its billion and fizzled out. When the interdict, as it came to be called, was lifted 100 years later, the first Circumlunans and Sacabons to plumb the gravity well and visit Earth were a surprise to its inhabitants, but the centuries alienated spacefolk found Terra a still greater shock. Mother Earth, Father Space, A Short History of Circumluna, by John Washington and Ivan Alipin. I teetered into blazing sunlight and a huge scene that was whirling around with me 20 times a minute, one full revolution every three seconds for the dozens of Texas giants I now saw, the hundreds of glass and metal living volumes, the thousands of rapidly moving Mexicans, most of these with massive metal collars from which rose small antennae, and even the blue sky, the marshmallow clouds, and the blinding disk of the sun. The entire universe had become a vast centrifuge and I one moat spinning near its center, an axis a dozen yards above my head. I staggered and reeled on my stilt legs, waiting for the sky to burst and the cosmos to rip apart from the incredible centrifugal forces tearing at it. Then I realized my error and the scene stopped spinning with a suddenness that almost knocked me down. What I had been interpreting as centrifugal force back in the room merled with Indians and Texans had been only normal Earth gravity. I learned in that instant that you can endlessly explain to a person who's lived all his life in free fall that human senses cannot distinguish between the effects of accelera. Tion, with which he's familiar, and gravity, of which he's had no experience. You can tell him that until your voice fails. No matter, he'll still go on believing that gravity will feel different, that it will grab him with invisible gluey fingers, that it will have in it the taint of unimaginable. Cubic miles of soil, rock, magma, incandescent core material, and other dirty planetary horrors. No sooner had I been experience educated out of one JL illusion than I became the victim of another, I felt I had returned to airless space. When a man who has lived all his life in a nullgrav satellite, a large but limited homeland of many rooms, steps outdoors for the first time on a planet, one of his strongest immediate reactions is to hold his breath. Not from wonder and amazement, though they are there, but because the 
Only comparable situation he knows is that of a man plunged into the vastness of space without an air supply. Ignoring the ground under his feet and the grabs pressing him to it, he will automatically see the unbounded sky as vacuum and any buildings around him as pressurized volumes to which he must win his way in seconds, or die. I held my breath, but I did not run, or, the actual impulse, to follow which would have resulted in my barking my nose on Texas, launch myself in an intended straight line trajectory at the nearest window or door. Perhaps my first bit of experience education made the second come quicker. Though still staggering about, I exhaled violently and forced myself to draw a lungful of the soupy air, stinkier now that we were outside. Besides discovering that I was in anything but vacuum, I also realized the explanation for my deep voice. All my life, even in the Tsiolkovsky, I had been breathing a light oxygen helium mix with small amounts of carbon dioxide and water vapor. Now I was subsisting on a thick witch's brew of the same oxygen, but stewed in gravity's pressure cooker with nitrogen and assorted taints. A heavier atmosphere, a deeper voice. As obvious as that, but only after it's happened to you. I looked around and down, to see that under Le Kukaric's directions Elmo's three servants had dropped my bags and were circling me as I reeled, ready to break my fall when I finally toppled. Elmo called back cheerily, you drunk, partner. Didn't know the super refreshing open air of Texas was that intoxicating to the uninitiated. But I forget you're a sacabond, reared on a little denatured oxygen and perfume. As I steadied myself, a whole gaggle of new little Mexicans came scurrying all around me, a couple of the tiniest. Ones even tugging at my cloak, and most of them calling up to me, Bendiganos, Padre. They were a raggedy, colorful lot, chiefly women and children, and none of them, praise Diana, wore those disgusting metal neck and shoulder pieces. I'm enough of an actor to ad-lib any role I'm thrust into, so I stuck two fingers out of my cloak, made a squiggle with them, and rumbled benignly, Benedict, Ms. Ninos y Nijas, adding for good measure, bless you, my children. It seemed natural enough for them to mistake me, with my robe and hood, for a tall priest or monk, maybe a black Franciscan. My ready response to their request seemed to satisfy them fully, for they were already scampering off when Elmo boomed, get away from the godman before you trip him with your rosaries, you church-struck little greasers. Scully, you're a card, but we got to make tracks for the governor's ranch house. Are you over your dizziness? Enough to ride a horse. I was about to respond, yes, of course. You think I'm a sissy, Homer, when a feeling of dizziness and weakness did strike me. A steady six lunagraphs and assorted startlements had been getting in their licks on my somewhat delicate physiology. My heart was pounding as it pumped. Blood to my brain, no small job, considering my height and the graphs. I was glad I was wearing an extra snug sack suit, to help my leg veins from going varicose and maybe even popping as they pushed blood up that weary distance from my toes. I tongue pep, instant glucose, and anti-grab pills out of their cheek plate container into my mouth. The carrot carrot and the tiny dissolving pellets seemed heavy as osmium on my tongue, and they dropped down my throat like bullets. I followed them with a sip of truly heavy water from my other cheek plate, tilting my exoskull head to do so. They quickly helped. La Cucaracha beamed up at me her congratulations, as if she already knew my inner feelings as well as I did. By the time, however, Elmo had a 20-foot whip uncoiled and was cracking it over a low narrow vehicle somewhat longer than I was. It rode on two caterpillar. Treads moved by ten wheels. 
The wheels fascinated me, except in pictures are employed as pulleys, one never sees wheels in Circumluna, where there is no gravity to put teeth in friction. OFLF the vehicle were scrambung a couple of dozen Mexicans, including some of those who had received my benediction, while Elma was shouting relaxedly, get off that cat wagon pronto, you fun-loving, irresponsible little monkeys. The black pope here needs it. I'll see it gets back to your patron. Then to me he said, climb aboard, Scully, and stretch out your weary exoskeleton. Ordinarily we don't let Mixes use power cars, but a cat wagon's no more than a toy. However, it's just what the metallurgical osteopath ordered for you. I can tell you're too frazzled to mount a steed yet, and come to think of it, I don't suppose they have too many cayuses in Circumluna, and those pretty spiritless. Oddly, he was right about that. CL did have a few horses for old-style serum factories and on-the-nose arc principle. I started to tell him I was splendidly unfrazzled and eager to learn the art of horsemanship but my heart was still pounding a bit, so I decided to conserve energy and keep my attention free for the weird sights around me. I did another of my stiff neat bows, braced my hands on and end of the cat wagon, transferred my feet to the other end, let myself down on my face, and then rolled over with a minimum of exoskeletal clankings. My heart quieted now that my circulatory system wasn't fighting gravity as hard. I felt better, except that I couldn't see much besides the sky. I raised my head and scanned. Elmo had coiled his whip and was hooking it to his silver-studded leather belt, which also supported two lightning pistols. Otherwise he was dressed in what I took to be a conservative Terran business suit, complete with cuffs, buttons, lapel, collar, and great sky-colored tie depicting blue bonnet flowers, but on his feet were huge, high-heeled leather boots and on his head a 612, factorial 4, gallon hat. He was astride a horse as huge, relatively, as he was. I marveled at the bone and muscle power of both, his to mount and the beasts to carry. In fact, for a moment I toyed with the notion that he had an exoskeleton under his suit, and the animal a surgically implanted steel one. He noted my gaze and said, yep, Scully, we feed our mounts the hormone too. Next to Texans, they're God's noblest creation. And now you might punch the cat wagon's first go button at your elbow. The lever next it steers her. I complied and our small cavalcade started off at a pace brisk to me, a novice driver. Elmo merely walked his horse ahead of us, but its strides were long and smooth. Just behind him La Cucaracha jounced on a burrow, now I understood those disproportionate murals better. My dar. Ling rode side saddle and regaled me with frequent smiles over shoulder, while to the rear Elmo's three Mexicans jogged with my bags. There was a disproportion I could correct. Senor Elmo, I called, tell your boys to throw my bags on the wagon and hop aboard themselves. There'll be no overload, despite my metal, I'm ass low. That's out, Scully, he boomed back. Can't have greasers riding with anything Texas tall, no mind how skinny or strange. Myself, I've been around and tolerate indecencies. But, twould shock Dalasian spitless. I want the bags for pillows, I explained, so I can study Dalasian salivation, etc., besides scan the road. Then that's okay. But the other's out. Peel your eyes, partner. You got a lot more to see than Texas Adam's apples bobbing. Hey, you greasers, comfort my guest cerebrum. With his luggage, I was inclined to argue longer with him about them riding, but the three Mexicans gave me such apprehensive glances as they trembling-handed tucked my bags in a soft stack under my head, and seemed so eager to return to their rear guard position, that I decided to postpone any equalitarian lecture. 
However, the frightened behavior of the three nagged at me. There was indeed much to see, most of it crazy to me, like a 3D motion montage with volumes moving at differ. And camera speeds, and most of it jammed into a single plane truly Terra is flatland. First there were the buildings, like cubicle satellites crowded in disordered ranks, some many rooms long, no, high, unendent made of metal and glass, reminding me of Circumluna. Between these went occasional gangways, streets, on one of which we traveled. Then there were the Texans, some on horses, others in slowly moving vehicles, others strolling afoot. The younger seemed even taller than the older, I wondered if the hormone had a cumulative effect. Moving about thrice as fast and in numbers a decimal order greater were the Mexicans, all of identical bent back height and almost all afoot. About 60% wore the metal collars and antennae, and these were all furiously busy at various construction and deconstruction jobs, half of our street was torn up, buildings were being dismantled. Others assembled, great masts reared, great holes dug. I even thought at first the collared workers could walk up walls, no strange sight to a space dweller, until I noted that those on vertical surfaces were supported by slim wires, which they swiftly climbed or down-climbed. One might wonder at my being able to see so much while maneuvering a strange vehicle for the first time in a gravity field. But if one has a lifetime of experience moving in three dimensions, moving in two is child's play. I was soon driving the cat wagon with such easy competence that I was able to spare a hand to work at my Bakini motor and had it adjusted in a matter of seconds. I surely had been woozy on my first try. I soon observed that I was attracting interest. The Texans' faces never turned toward me, but their eyeballs did, and they slowed down in passing. The collarless Mexi. Gans goggled me frankly, but speeded up, making wide curves around our cavalcade. The collared ones, however, marched by with never a glance, like so many tiny, swift juggernauts, fortunately people avoiding ones. The speed of all the bent backs surprised me. Father had told me all about Mexicans. A strict indoctrination in racial and national behavior had come very early in my education, because it is very important in the theater. Father had assured me that all Mexicans were short and wore serapes and big hats, went barefoot, and spent their lives sitting against adobe walls, smoking hemp and sleeping, except for brief periods of firing off pistols. These Mexicans were not at all like that, except for the short and barefoot parts. In fact, there were many types. Just now some wee Mexican children, cute as dark kittens, came toddling up and scattered flowers over me, most likely thinking me a corpse bound for the boneyard, for when I lifted and turned my had to look at them, they ran away. La Cucaracha had slowed her burrow until she was jogging beside me. She observed, legends, or lies, from the black lands tell that flower power was once a great thing. But here at least it has died out. Noting my special interest in the collared Mexicans, she explained disdainfully, they are cyborgs, the estupidos. Their collars feed them orders and happiness, straight into their veins and nerves. From a distance foreman control them, after a fashion. She added the last phrase when two files of cyborgs collided and instantly began a confused milling aimed at eventual disentanglement, like ants I had once watched in a flatland between grass. They live like this forever. I asked with some horror. Ah, no, she assured me, only during the working day. The other ten hours they exist as men, employing what fragments of pounded adobe spirit they have left. Chiefly they feed, fornicate, and sleep. My countrymen. I recalled what had been nagging me. Senorita K, I asked, why is it that your countrymen regard me with a fear that is both more and less than fear? 
Explain that to me if you will, am I a Mata Bonita? With a rapid frown and finger shake, she leaned down and whispered warningly, no tendernesses until moonrise, as I first commanded you, you tall and competent and undisciplined. Then in an equally low, but most cool voice, she continued, Senor La Cruz, my people are like children. They live by fairy tales, some sweet as sugar, some grisly as red bone. One of the latter tells of a death tall as the sky who will one day come striding across Texas. He will have the form of a great skeleton, El Escaleto, he's named. Oftenest, he will be tossing like Fritos into his great naked jaws and grinding their human skulls, made of sugar candy, some say, of fresh torn bloody bone and brains, say others. My people will flock to him. He will give them never a glance, any more than stars and clouds look down at men, but he will lead them to freedom. I had become so engrossed in her small but colorful tale that I almost started when a large voice inquired, Kuki been feeding you a sob story about cyborgs? Elmo had gradually let his own mount drift backward until he too was beside me, on the opposite side of the wagon. Don't. You believe a single word comes out of her cute, lying, little postage stamp lips. Scully, my pal, cyborgs lead EA lot happier than Texans. Their joy comes each day sure as Coca-Cola. Besides, they're essential to our liberty and freedom, as I've explained. Myself, I think they would all be trampled under the specter's bony feet, if they do not run like whipped dogs at the sight of him, La Cucaracha continued as coolly as if there had been no interruption at all. Cyborged or not, my people are estipedos de estipedos, cynical little bitch, ain't she? Elmo observed, Kuki, you got an ice cube for a heart. Lucky for you you're cold. Blood don't chill your skin and that it stays out of your tits and toes and t'other place midway between them. My body, though small, is designed in more classic proportions than that, esteemed patron, she replied to him tartly. It is midway between my head top and feet soles that my crotch has the privilege of being situated. She continued, Senor La Cruz, my people are like children. They live by fairy tales, some sweet as sugar, some grisly as red bone. One of the latter tells of a death tall as the sky who will one day come striding across Texas. He will have the form of a great skeleton, El Escaleto, he's named. Oftenest, he will be tossing like Fritos into his great naked jaws and grinding their human skulls, made of sugar candy, some say, of fresh torn bloody bone and brains, say others. My people will flock to him. He will give them never a glance, any more than stars and clouds look down at men, but he will lead them to freedom. I had become so engrossed in her small but colorful tale that I almost started when a large voice inquired, Kuki been feeding you a sob story about cyborgs. Elmo had gradually let his own mount drift backward until he too was beside me, on the opposite side of the wagon. Don't. You believe a single word comes out of her cute, lying, little postage stamp lips. Scully, my pal, cyborgs lead EA lot happier than Texans. Their joy comes each day sure as Coca-Cola. Besides, they're essential to our liberty and freedom, as I've explained. Myself, I think they would all be trampled under the specter's bony feet, if they do not run like whipped dogs at the sight of him, La Cucaracha continued as coolly as if there had been no interruption at all. Cyborged or not, my people are estipedos de estipedos, cynical little bitch, ain't she? Elmo observed, Kuki, you got an ice cube for a heart. Lucky for you you're cold. Blood don't chill your skin and that it stays out of your tits and toes and t'other place midway between them. 
My body, though small, is designed in more classic proportions than that, esteemed patron, she replied to him tartly. It is midway between my head top and feet soles that my crotch has the privilege of being situated. Now, Kuki, you mind your modesty and keep your mind hidden, Elma warned her. Don't you go starting an intellectual striptease front of me and my guest. T'other kind's the only one a woman's fitted for, greaser or gringo. You wish me to mop and mow like a madwoman, master. Or grunt to Senor La Cruz, no sabe. Or discard my clothing perhaps. Now, Kuki, FM telling you that if you don't behave, re, the altercation might have become unpleasant, except that at that moment I involuntarily interrupted it. We were. Approaching a gold or gilded statue twenty feet high of a most muscular man in barbarian garb. From his helmet thrust very long and twisting horns. His right hand swung back a battle axe, his left pointed a six-shooter. Who is that? I demanded, pointing with a black shrouded leg, because I was riding feet first and my hands were busy driving. I did not know that Tara had regressed to full barbarianism during the interdict. Scully, ain't you familiar with the discoverer of Texas, even, and its first decent size hombre? Elmo retorted in. Genially scandalized tones. You mean to tell me you ain't ever heard of Leif Erickson, Paul Bunyan, Big Bill Thompson, John L. Sullivan, William Randolph Hearst, Abraham Lincoln, and such other great Texans? No, I admit it, though I have heard of Sam Houston, Jim Bowie, and my namesake Davy Crockett. Oh, yeah, they were Texans too, he admitted, though. On a more local plane, San Jacinto and Alamo boys. And old Raven Sam, though one of our early prexies, was pretty dubious in some ways, Indian lover and Yankee fellow traveler, it's said. I thought of asking him about Julius Caesar and Jesus Christ, but refrained for fear of having an attack of history. Epilepsy. I might learn that they too had been Texans. Instead I said, steering the cat wagon around Leif Erickson, I recognized some of the others you named, but thought them men of the United States and Canada. La Cucaracha had jogged ahead again, though not without giving me a quick-lip-pursed smile and eyelash ripple. Elmo leaned out of his saddle toward me and said, Scully, I can see your heavenly instructors knew only the super. Official version of Earth's history, the one pap fed to the general pub. Since you're going to be meeting some mighty sophisticated and influential men today, it's best you know a scrap or two of the truth. Arnago Mio, the Lone Star Republic never was of the United States. In 1845 she assumed leadership of them, because she could see. They needed bolstering against foreign aggression and internal disorder, and that was a most accurate foresight, because she had to spend the next three years throwing back the attack of Mexico on them, and pretty soon she had the civil war to run, both sides. Of course it was given out to the general public of the states, who never had no brains or guts know-how and flustered easy, that this assumption of leadership was annexation, but it was always known to the Speaker of the House and the Senators who counted in Washington that by secretes treaty Texas was boss. Thereafter the Presidents. In the White House were just figureheads for the Texas establishment, Franklin D. Roosevelt, for instance, was the puppet of R. Jack Garner, a mighty modest kingpin, just as later on Lyndon the great boss Jack Kennedy, though the latter was posthumously declared an honorary Texan and president thereof because of the grandeur and ritual importance of his demise. With the coming of the Third World War and the autorization of Washington, New York, San Francisco, and so forth, secrecy became unnecessary and Texas took over in name as well as in substance, including for good measure the frosty top and hot, dry, jungly bottom of the continent. We needed more greasers. Anyhow, for therapeutic reasons.
My mind was tossing like the cat wagon, which was traversing a curving section of the street under repair and trying to dodge Mexicans who were simultaneously dodging me. I wished now I had had other history instructors besides my father, who would dispose of the conquest of a continent with an Ophelian, enter barbarians with battle axes, or of a civilization with exit voluptuaries, wringing hands and screaming. Idris does quick naked dive across. I knew quite a bit of Greek, Roman, and English dynastic history and the neurotic antics of 20th century man from Ibsen and Bergman to green comedy and inner space multistage, but our repertoire had no late plays set in Texas, so father had brushed past that land quickly. Oh, before my down orbit he'd briefed me on the Northwest. Territory and Yellowknife minutely and with great accuracy, I thought now I was not so sure. Well, I've had my say and it's your turn to talk, Scully, Elmo interrupted. You were saying something back there about the Yellowknife Registry of Mining Claims. His voice was suddenly so casual and his memory so precise. That for no other reasons I found myself getting suspicious. But once again I was given opportunity to change the topic by a golden sculpture, this one abstract. Beside the street, about 20 meters up, hung a golden rectangle, across the lower side of which there was aphibiexed, pointing acutely downward, what looked like a distance weapon of some sort, all golden too. It was a few moments before I saw the slim, transparent pylon supporting this part of the abstraction, Sinir was the pylon substance too. Being invisible, the distance weapon pointed at the other half of the abstraction, a most complex structure of pipes, wires, rods, springs, and boxes, all golden too, about as long as my cat wagon but wider and thicker. This fantastic brick of golden tracery was also supported by the near-invisible substance, but at a height of only half a meter. Pointing, Elmo explained, there's the window in the book depository from which Oswald fired the fatal shots, and that's the chassis of the car in which Jack got gunned down, providing by that one brave act of his an example to all future presidents of Texas to go their way courageously. When their political bell tolled, incidentally, Scully, he continued, leaning a little lower in his saddle and pitching his voice likewise, what I'm going to tell you now is pretty high security stuff, but the menfolk where we're going have got nothing else in. Their skulls, deep waters, scully, deep waters, so it's only fair I give you a paddle or two to navigate with, and maybe an aqualong. And besides, we Texans don't care much for security, we like things loose as the reins by which we hurt our second-class citizenry. Anyhow, what I was going to tell you is this, our current president of Texas is hedging a bit when it comes to following Jack's great example. He's disliked, you see, but instead of standing forth and dying like a man, he's turned the president's manse into a fort and, believe it and weep, he's organized a corps of mechs. I can house boys faithful to his person, and he's armed them. With laser guns at that. Which ain't playing fair at all to the political opposition. Why, he's even kicked out his Texas Ranger guards. Says he can't trust them not to kill him, which is true, of course, but uncouth to mention. It's him we're going to visit now. No, you got it all wrong, Scully, though his manse is here in Dallas, where all important things are. We're going to visit the ranch of Cotton Bowie Lamar, governor of Texas, Texas, that is, governor of the father state in the world's greatest nation. We're not going to have anything to do at all with that dastardly, Mexican arming tyrant Longhorn Elijah Austin, current bossman of that same greatest nation, though it pains me to say so. You hope to defeat him at the next election? I asked. Elmo shook his head and sucked his lips with a plop. Nope, Scully, in achieving real freedom we've long ago discarded the phantasms of democracy. 
For the immaterial, ignoble ballot we've resubstituted the material, ritually preferable, noble bullet, which is the item Longhorn EA. Most contumeliously refuses to face. Adverse ballots he'd let cascade off him like cottonwood balls. Meanwhile the wheels of the cat wagon, the hooves of the burrow and hormoned horse, and the rotting six homie souls of the Mexicans' feet were carrying us past a most interestingly different expanse. All metal, glass, and plastic. We're gone. In the distance was a veritable forest of tiny. Putments bowered and lined by bursts of bright color flowers, it occurred to me with pleased surprise. Between them and our street was a crowded city of pastel homes pale violet, blue, and pink, but too tiny even for Mexicans. Then I realized that this was a graveyard. Between the palely colorful homes of the dead was hobbling toward us, helped by long staff, a figure robed like myself, but in yellow and orange and about five feet tall, while his hood held only blackness. My exoskeleton suddenly felt cold to my sack-suited skin. I stopped the cat, wagon and sat up. Freezer Town, Elmo explained succinctly. With an effort I forced my eyes to scan away from the figure that disturbingly held them. Ahead, bordered on two sides by the cemetery and on one by our street, and backed by a structure of pastel arches I took for a church, was an even more colorful metal construction consisting of a large, round, empty floor ten feet off the ground, approached by several stairways and shaded by a rippling canopy supported by slim rainbow pillars ten meters tall. A quick nod from La Cucaracha told me that my first thought was correct, it was the bandstand of our evening assignation. But the romantic leaping in me was chilled as my gaze returned to the advancing robe one. I still could not discern a face inside the hood. I asked myself if it were only the bright sunshine making shadows blacker, or if, here comes one of them concerned niggers and Buddhists from one of them concerned Tidewater Anarchias California most like, which has been predominantly black ever since the assassination of Ronald III, Elmo observed. Although their Zens are troublesome little locos, forever ranting and mooching and setting themselves afire. We let them wander freely through Texas out of the greatness of our tolerance and, his voice dropped, for diplomatic reasons. Now I could see the slit-eyed, anger contorted, almost inky black face inside the hood. Because of intermarriage, such extreme skin colors have vanished from the sack and even circumluna. Some of my apprehension disappeared, but only some. He stopped two meters from me. Now that he limped no longer, but stood only, he gained a foot in height, or seemed to. His eyelids flew open wide, disclosing great orbs of madness, like bloodshot moons. An unseen power emanated from him and gripped me. Oh white dirt from the sky, he cried gratingly at me. Arise and shoulder your karma. I nervously cleared my throat. Grasping his staff two-handed by one end, he brought it straight down on my head before I could think to defend myself. My titanium head basket rang with a muffled but sonorous bong. I wasn't hurt, but I was jarred, numbed, and startled. Arise, I command you, you miserable construct of flesh and metal, you abominable offspring of Ofe and Engine, he growled on. Arise and accept the great destiny, of which you are totally unworthy. And he swung back his staff for another bash. I felt powerless to defend myself. La Cucaracha was kicking her burrow toward him, but it was Elmo's whip that took him around the shoulders. There was a crackle and a faint bluish flash, and then he was writhing on his back in the dirt, shaking his fists and gurgling unintelligible words, presumably of anger. With a most expert flick of the same whip, Elma wound its tip around the staff, flipped it toward himself, caught it in a ham-like hand, and pitched it javelin-wise far into the graveyard. Then the whip returned to strike sparks from the ground near the twisting figure. 
Famoose, you nameless son of Nirvana, or I declare till grill you before you can get out your gasoline to do it for yourself, he bellowed. The Buddhist scrambled to his feet and hobbled off through the gravestones with great shoulder bobbings. Using a fisted stiff arm for staff, but looking back across his sullied robes to glare and curse, or so it sounded. What was he talking about? I asked in a voice driven by anxiety almost baritone high. Elmo shrugged. Oh, those hash-blasted zens always talk that way. With them, destinies and karmas and carnations are a penny a peck. Trouble is, they're always banging people over the skull, to emphasize their senseless statements, they say. Lucky you got that half-helmet, Scully. I'd run the maniac in, except we don't want to waste no time. A black bee bonnet, say your La Cruz, my darling chimed in. Filth beneath your feet, think no more of him. But how did he know I was from space? Once more Elmo shrugged, screwing up his big face like a giant pepper. Those niggers got odd ways of knowing things, now and again, he admitted. He also knew, despite my cloak and hood, that I combined metal and flesh. That's true. Maybe there's something here needs watching. Kuki, you take Gonzalez and company and find out what that black bugger's up to. But don't nervous him. He really might set himself afire, though he's black as a cinder. Already. Then report home. Aha, I knew it would come. My dear one cried, her dark eyes snapping with anger, real or assumed. I knew you would once again find an excuse not to take me to the governor's ranch. Is it that you fear my boldness will embarrass you? Now, Kuki. Or is it that you are afraid one of higher rank will demand me of you on a trade, and you lack spirit to refuse? Kuki. You hop it now without no back talk, or I swear I'll ante you up first hand of my next poker game. Agreed. And they will have to send to the girl shops of Ciudad Mexico or New Orleans at least to match your bet. Pedro, Pablo, Pacto. VD Monaster as she spun her burrow toward the graveyard, the three bent backs trotting behind her, she spared me one more. I flash, and with three fingers she pitter-patted the pleasing bump on the left side of her chest, to indicate the feelings of the organ beneath. Elmo said to me, Scully, time's a-wasting. You must have got the hang of that cat wagon by now, so let's press a bit. And with that he removed his immense hat, swung it twice in a circle, cried, Kee yippee, and healed his mount into a ponderous gallop. Gritting my teeth, which I do with great power, I thumbed the last go button at my elbow and sped after him, bouncing about a bit on my flatbed. As we raced by the bandstand neck and neck, the depression that had gripped me from first sight of the orange-yellow monk now lifted entirely. My spirits soared. I would fulfill my mission on Terra, yes, but with even greater certainty, memorizing the route from now on, I would return to the romantically hued cemetery tonight at moonrise, even if I had to adapt jets to my exoskeleton and compute for the first time. A gravity atmosphere parabola. A few brown-robed figures poured from the church as we passed it. Perhaps they thought my vehicle was a runaway hearse, complete with shrouded corpse, and so their responsibility, since it fell within their traditional area of birth and baptism, confirmation, marriage, mortal illness, and death. But we soon outdistanced them. 3. Governor S. Ranch, Texas is a wandering and tattered ribbon of white fascism, ineffectually separating the non-directive black democracies and hip republics of Florida and California, and occupying at most 2% of North America. Two cents worth of bloated, mentally bombed out squaredom. <coughs> African America, by Booker T. Nkrumah, Tuskegee. Institute de la Voodooette Technologic Librairie Texas is a serene superstate stretching from the equator to Siberia. 
Cornered by the trivial tumultuous black energies of the seaweed regions, he inspires and tolerantly dominates the top half of the new world, of the vast ranges of which he occupies 99.9%, an area greater than that of the King Ranch. Lone Star Continent, by Sam Houston Lipinski, University of Texas at Minneapolis Press My exoskeleton responding to its myoelectric orders with purring FIBCI and C, I speeded up at the last instant and entered the state patio of the governor's ranch, bow astonishment, a long stride ahead of Elmo and the scuttling bent. Back houseboys in violet knee pants and lace-trimmed violet jackets, but barefoot as Gonzalez and company. These came in two converging clusters through the greaser doors closely flanking the gringo door. Then I stopped dead, standing perfectly erect, and let them all pile up clumsily behind me. I had learned how to steal an entrance before I ever played Tom Sawyer, Odd John, Jami Cross, or Little Lord Fauntleroy. As Elmo began my introduction in suddenly subdued and almost faltering tones with a Governor Cotton Bowie Lamar, Your Honor, and Gentlemen. Other gentlemen, I ceased listening carefully to him and rapidly scanned the scene without moving an exoskeletal link. I was in a spacious area roofed by the sky, walled on three sides by metal walls four stories high and of many colors, and flagstoned by an even more rainbow jigsaw puzzle of polished minerals, marbles perhaps from many quarries, most of the pieces mosaic small. In the flat distance were a few trees and many slender towers in the form of truncated cones. Two of these were five times the height of the rest, wider in proportion, and looked much newer. They all cast long, late afternoon shadows. Beginning in the middle distance and ending 20 meters away was a vast rippling rectangle reflecting the sky's blue. If it were water, there was, I decided, enough for a lake, far more even than in Circumluna's largest swimming volume. From a platform next to it, a large, long board extended, which made me think of pirate tales of walking the plank. But perhaps it was petroleum, I reminded myself, unrolling from my memory a map of Terra's resources, where areas rich in fossil animal fats were colored blue. Nearer at hand, each occupying his own many-pillowed cutch-like structure with low tables on either side, were a half-dozen male Texans more elegantly, or at least more neatly, clad than Elmo and all with noble craggy faces, as if they belonged in a quality western, circa 1950, circumlunas and the sax microfilmed and taped records of. Earth's arts are said to be better than those of Terra herself. Like Elmo's their legs were the heaviest part of them, it takes great columns indeed to support in six lunagraphs the mass matching an eight-foot height. Their gleamingly polished boots were vast. All held or had beside them glasses of amber fluid, while most puffed long reefers, there was a scent like plastics. Under heat treatment, bent backs scampered about noiselessly, serving an erranding. All the recumbent ones radiated an aura of power even greater than that of physical elegance, and all had one or more of the behavioral quirks that traditionally go with the possession of power. The nearest held in one half-closed hand a stack of gleamingly yellow rounds and clinked them. In Walt's time, another had inserted three fingers under his gleaming white shirt and with them was scratching his solar plexus in another rhythm. A crop-haired one had a seven-second facial tick that with each convulsion threatened to dislodge, but never quite did, the large monocle occupying his left orbit. Yet, as I say, all had matinee idol. Profiles, circa 1900. I noted with approval that as they listened to Elmo, their gaze was on me. Elmo wound up with, and he has large mining interests in North Texas, which irked me considerably. The guesser and loose mouth. Yet it was truly I who had first been waggy-tongued when coming out of sedation. Without the least flourish I removed my hooded cloak and dropped it on the nearest houseboy. 
It covered him totally, but I did not pause to note how he handled this problem. With the least bow, I slowly rotated my face like a panoramic camera from one end of the recumbent group to the other, meanwhile saying in my lowest audible voice, resonant with nerve-gripping subsonics, most potent, grave, and reverend signers, my very noble and approved good masters, I come to you bearing greetings from the outside. <coughs> Universe. Father had always advised me about vanity-mad humans, which includes the entire species, terrestrial and spatial, even I have touches of conceit, lay the flattery on with a trowel, Christopher, and never hesitate to borrow from the bard. He was himself the prince of borrowers. I could tell that my deep voice and slim, soldierly bear. King impressed them. Sure stage sense had led me to use the HNES of Venice's great captain, Othello. Next I turned and bowed a trifle more, but only a trifle, to the man whom Elmo had first addressed. Governor Lamar, Your Excellency, I said, I bring you the especial salutations of Circumluna and the Bubbles Conjuries. Sack seemed to lack sufficient dignity in this situation. And then I eyed him commandingly. Almost as if hypnotized, who knows my full powers, not I, the governor slowly got to his feet, meanwhile abstractedly picking from his dark coat two bits of invisible lint, that was his idiosyncrasy. He was the slenderest of the lot, which isn't saying a great deal, and by a shade the most distinguished looking. Mr. La Cruz, he said, I'm grieved at the inconvenience your ill-informed pilot caused you. Perhaps he understandably assumed Dallas the port of space entry for all points in our vast nation, but I'm pleased at the opportunity of welcoming you to Texas, Texas. We see few spacey dwellers, sir, and he broke off to capture between finger and thumb something unseen on his left elbow. And I, sir, chimed in the clinker of gold pieces, copying Lamar in rising, as Adams Bill Burleson, mayor thereof, welcome you to Dallas. His gray-eyed gaze wandered up and down me. Pardon me, sir, I mean no offense, but I've never seen a man slender as, no, pardon me further, as. Emaciated as yourself and still in the land of the living. We've heard of the terrible tortures practiced by the intellectuality drunken autocrats of Circumluna, from whose tyranny I assume you're in flight, but I never guessed that simple starvation continued for years, nay, surely decades I silenced him with a lifted hand and intoned, given energy and mass, even of the slightest, to manipulate, man can survive in any environment, including internal ones. Only a minimum of muscle and fat is required in sol-heated null grab or free fall. We become thins or fats, or maintain large muscles by nagrav exercises, as suits our tempera. Mens, aesthetic, pinic, or athletic. I, myself, sir, am fairly clearly a thin. But I do not understand the mention of tyranny. Circumluna and the Bubbles Conjuries are a technocratic democracy. Another of the power men asked me, this one without getting up, we've always understood that Circum and the Sack were inhabited solely by longhairs. Now I'm a plain speaker. Are you one of those, Mr. La Cruz? This one was the burliest and the most burly-legged of the lot and his eccentricity was squeezing lengthwise between thumb and forefinger a black column that lengthened to two decimeters or shortened to nothing without changing diameter, an odd toy, but I had his question to reply to. Let my shaven pate be your answer. Mr., I saw no point in mentioning the shoulder-length blonde wig in my baggage. I eyed him commandingly, but with him it didn't work, at least he didn't rise. Another of the non-risers broke in, the stomach scratcher, with whom Elmo, I now noted, had been talking privately. I gather you got mining investments in North Texas, he said, continuing to scratch, but who are you with, stranger? I am with myself, I instantly replied with a shrug. 
And, to be sure, I am with Mr. Herb there, who most kindly befriended me at the spaceport. That's right, that's right, Elmo put in hastily and also defensively. That's the truth, simple as put and take poker. I glared at him. He only stared back injuredly, but Lamar at least comprehended the meaning of my look. I'm sure that none of us intended to question Mr. LaCruz's word, he said soberly. By the by, I should have introduced, but he broke off to flick suspiciously and several times with the backs of his fingernails at an apparently spotless area of his knife-pleated trousers. As for those mining investments, I seized the chance to say, I have none. Mr. Earp misinterpreted one of my re- Marks. The matter I have to settle in Amarillo Cuchillo is purely an old family affair. Of honor. Lamar resumed softly, a gleam coming into his eyes and also into those of the gold-chinking Burleson. But before I could answer, the scratcher again broke in loudly. And you mistook one of my meanings, stranger. When I asked you who you was with, I didn't mean who you had around you, or anything complicated like that. I just meant who are you with. I do not think I understand you, I said courteously. When? Where? Anywhere? Anytime? But especially now? Who are you with? I looked around somewhat helplessly, yet with a bravely jesting small smile calculated to win the sympathy of any audience. Is it a riddle, gentlemen? I asked at last. It's no riddle and you're just making it more complicated, the scratcher retorted almost angrily. Then he seemed to take himself in hand, and with such patience as one might bestow on a weak-witted child, he said, Look, I'm asking it this way, like, before I became sheriff of Dallas County, I was with Littleton and Lamar Lightning. And before that I was with Hunt S. Bionostics, and so on. Every male Texan who amounts to anything is with some company, unless he's a public official, in which case he's with the government. I comprehend, I said. I am with, indeed, a featured player with, the La Cruz Theater in the Sphere Stock. Company. A thespian. Lamar began warmly. My daughter will be, stock company. Burleson exclaimed at the same time, chinking his gold like the wild clash of symbols. Mean to say you issue shares, debentures, and, La Cruz Company exclaimed the one with the black cylinder. You own this business. I know for a fact that on. Circumluna total communism. Gentlemen, I politely silenced them with my deepest voice, then rapidly explained, I am indeed an actor, a freefall Shakespearean. Our company is stock only in the old theatrical sense of employing stock characters, or types, though most of us are more versatile than that implies. While it is my father who owns the company, though it has cooperative features and family business, a Yes, I told Black Cylinder. And we do have ownership, often private, in space. If objects and operations are not owned and valued, who will care for them? Mister, once again my hint that full introductions would be death. Cerebral was lost, this time because of the last recumbent, the one with the monocle. All this while he had been watching me with intensest interest, like a schoolboy impatient to recite or demonstrate, and constantly jiggling about on his couch working his features in addition to his tick, so that I expected it surely each time to dislodge the glass. Circle that magnified his left eye oilishly. Now, as if obeying an impulse become irresistible, he sprang up and darted toward me, violet-clad houseboys altering their orbits to clear him a path. He stopped in front of me and, stooping and rearing, scanned my exoskeleton up and down. His fingers constantly fluttered over it. Without quite touching it, perhaps because I folded my arms and, staying most erect, gave him a slight frown. I am extremely interested, in machinery, he said in the enthusiastic but confidential tones of one who tells you, I have a thing about flagellation. 
He continued, in particular, prosthetic, waldoic, and robotic machinery. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, a strength and delicacy far beyond us. What lofting, nature's own skeleton translated to T-beams, with a thousand improvements. Such tiny servomotors, yet so clearly powerful. What space-saving and battery housings. I take it that without this peerless device you would be, completely helpless here. Yes, even in one lunograph, let alone six, I admitted. Somewhat taken off guard by his exclamations, Mr. He only continued his fantastical praises with, and how perfect a twin, or symbiote, rather, your own body is. As if bred to fit this one superb prosthetic and no other. Bone and metal in a perpetual exquisite embrace or communion I began to feel too much like a starred slave girl stripped. On the auction block, so that when he actually began to circle behind me, I turned so as to continue to face him. He speeded up, then suddenly reversed, without getting behind me. As this nonsensical ballet continued, I began a series of calisthenics, knee bends chiefly and head circlings and rapid arm extensions that missed his hair carpeted. Dome by fractional inches. He flinched not a whit, such was his ecstatic concentration. He was of German extraction, most likely, I decided, which would fit the cropped hair and monocle, standard stage indexes of the Teuton. Governor Lamar, who had been totally absorbed in a most difficult episode of lint picking, since it involved the left shoulder of his suit close to his neck, now put a stop to our ridiculous pas de deux with a, Professor Faninowitz. Scientific curiosity can come later, if our visitor permits. Mr. Christopher Crockett LaCruz, I wish to present to you Professor Cassius Krupp Faninowitz, who heads the engineering school at UTD. Charmed, the professor assured me, making the word hum. But his eyes continued to race over my exoskeleton as he very lightly pressed my hand, which extended bare of metallic or other support from my titanium wrist plate. I felt mightily tempted, but controlled myself. The governor's gaze began to creep toward his right shoulder, but with a perceptible effort he looked up and continued, I also wish to present to you, Sir, Chaparral Houston Hunt, Commander-in-Chief of the Texas Bangers. And Bigfoot Charchase, Sheriff of Dallas, pointing in turn at Black Cylinder and the Scratcher. But Mr., or do you prefer Sayer, La Cruz, I've been remiss in my hospitalities. I've sent for my daughter, as I wished to present her too, but since she's delayed, would you care to? Recline, he indicated an empty couch near at hand, and partake of refreshment. Professor, perhaps you two would now be more comfortable on your own couch. Say your suits best, I said on one of my typical impulses, carefully letting myself down onto the couch indicated, while Fanny Noitz heeded the governor's suggestion. Though obviously disappointed at not being able to witness more closely the new bendings of my exoskeleton. Thank you, I added to the governor, meaning it. Twenty minutes on my titanium footplates had left me suddenly fatigued. I tongued in my three sorts of pills, then almost closed my eyes as relaxation hit me, except that I saw the governor frowning a question at me. He looked toward Elmo, then faintly frowned at me again. I hesitated, then responded with a slight smile and nod. Mr. Erb, the governor said, you take a couch too, that one, pointing at one outside the circle of the rest of us. Elmo somewhat shamefacedly gave me a quick smile of gratitude as he hastened to obey. Meanwhile houseboys had placed on the table to my right a glass of amber fluid chinking with ice cubes and laid in a scalloped golden tray on the left hand table a long reefer just set a smolder with a hot point and a clever hand suction device. But before taking either up, I once again scanned and sought to evaluate the Texans around me. 
The Mexicans could come later, there were more of them and in any case they seemed at first glance as alike as identical twins, psychically cyborged if not physically. The Texans appeared to form two chief groups. Governor Lamar and Mayor Burleson were playing me up. Sheriff I. Chase and Ranger Hunt, despite curt nods and curter smiles when they'd been introduced to me by Lamar, were still putting me down. Why, in both cases remained to be discovered. Elmo's role at least was now altogether clear to me. He was the sort of minor political hanger-on who seeks to catch small rewards, if only food, drinks, and moments with the great, by inventing favors to do them, such as bringing them a stranded space oddity, exactly as he might have brought them a wandering, half-witted millionaire or good-looking showgirl. Yes, I had Elmo's number, all right, and my estimate was confirmed by the swiftness with which he latched onto a drink and reefer, also sending one of the houseboys for a large plate of appetizers. My feeling of growing friendliness toward him became mingled with a tolerant contempt. Finally, there was the professor, seemingly all technical curiosity, which made him the easiest first object for the conversational attack I now mounted, with the intention of truly charming them all, the necessary first tactic of any traveler in a strange land. Sir, I said to him, despite your Polish-sounding patronymic, pardon my familiarity, I take it you are of German extraction, an inheritor of the Teutonic scientific genius. I am indeed, he responded, nodding so vigorously that I thought his monocle must surely go. Only in Texas, sir, and the adjacent southwest could a Bavarian ever have found a spiritual home away from home. My great-great-great-grandfather came over with the first V2s. The atomic war, I asked politely. No, World War II, not three, he informed me. The V2s lacked atomic warheads, my ancestor had a great sorrow about that, though they were the first true space vehicles. Tell me, gentlemen, I asked around. How is it that Texas, or Texas, Texas, rather, escaped the atomization which I gather the rest of North America endured? It was all due to the supreme foresight of Lyndon I and his immediate successors, Mayor Burleson took it on himself to explain. Realizing that this was the true heartland of the continent, they walled it with anti-continental ballistic missile missile defenses and drawing on the local excavation and drilling skill, and also taking advantage of its natural caverns, they filled it with nuclear shelters of the deepest and most strongly roofed variety. J. Constructing what may be called the Texas Bunker, though it was then known as the Houston Carlsbad Cabham's Denver Kansas City Little Rock Pentagram, or maybe Pentagon. A step of profound wisdom, Senor La Cruz, for which we have reason to be eternally grateful. So that when the atomic war finally came, Professor Fanny Noitz took up with an excitement almost gleeful, now the monocle must surely go, Russia, China, France, England, Black Africa, my own tormented and divided nation, and the outworks of the Texas bunker were shattered, mangled, tattered, while here snugly survived the rural spirit of Assyria, Macedon, Rome, Bavaria, and the brave Boers. Now at last a tick coincided with a near. Screech and the monocle did pop out, though rather disappointingly he caught it deftly in his left hand and whipped it instantly back into its proper orbit, where it gleamed as brightly as his bared white teeth. I meanwhile had taken the first of the three sips I allow myself of an alcoholic beverage, a small sip, for the drink was strong, and inhaled two puffs of marijuana vapor, a smoke I had never before sampled. It seemed mild stuff, but I soon began to feel a lofty well-being, despite the grisly things being told me, and the scene and sounds around and about me began to organize themselves symphonically, even the chinking of Mayor Burleson's coins fitting perfectly into the great rhythm. 
At first, I must admit, there was something sinister about the tiny tympanic tune of Power Man releasing tension, tick, clink, clink, scratch, scratch, squeeze, squeeze, faintest plink of thumb and finger dip on captured lint speck, dot, dot, tick, but swiftly even these noises became orchestrated into a blissful totality. Mayor Burleson said, Sayur La Cruz, I don't doubt you come from space, in fact, I can't, seeing that handsome contraption you need to get around in gravity, but your middle name and height make me think you're originally a Texan who got the hormone. Now that hormone's a closely guarded secret, sir, the lower orders of society and the rest of the world haven't grown up enough yet to be trusted with bigness, and we wouldn't like to think of it being known to the long hairs of Circumluna. I said in words dreamy and poetic, yet perfectly enunciated and of course still very deep-pitched, I may well indeed be of Texan ancestry. There can be no certainty about it, for my grandfather lifted to the sack from Spanish Harlem in New York City, yet my middle name whispers its hint, and the lines of heredity are as mysteriously interwoven as the curves of the clouds now gathering above as to enchant our gaze. But as for your last fear, Mayor, set your mind at rest. In free fall, unconfined by gravity, human growth is freer and sometimes almost fantastical. My grandfather was tall and slender, my father more so, and I still more so. My mother too is of considerable length, though it is her pleasure to be a fat. The whole scene around me, though darkening toward sunset, presented itself to me with supernormal clarity, each detail a gem. I took another small sip of my drink, but returned the reefer to its tray, a little of that stuff was enough for my attenuated physiology, as with most drugs. My feelings had reached a harmonious acme, why spoil it? I felt marble, housely relaxed and at peace. I placed a titanium heel atop a titanium toe guard, in effect crossing my legs for comfort as I noted several of my companions had done, and continued, yet I feel greatly at home here, a Texan in spirit if not in fact. You are no longer my hosts, but my dear friends. Say. Fior La Cruz is all very well, but I would be happier if you called me Chris, or perhaps Scully, the name Mr. Earp bestowed on me from my cadaverousness. That's fine, Scully, call me Adams, Burleson responded. However, I noted the commander, the sheriff, and the professor bristled almost imperceptibly, my senses were vastly acute at the moment, and gave the mayor slight, dark looks, a pale shade of gray, while Tully Governor was moodily absorbed watching a houseboy wipe his gleaming boots with a white pocket handkerchief he'd given him. I determined to charm them in spite of themselves and at that moment remembered an anecdote of my father's. I took the third sip of my drink and firmly set it down. Gentlemen, I said somewhat sharply, whatever I am in fact, I feel myself a Texan at this moment, sharing your expansive relaxation, your wide wisdom, your tolerance, your homely but huge humor. May I tell you a story? I was pleased to note that it was the governor who gave me the nod. It had been to rouse him that I'd spoken. Sharply. When time was young, I said, speaking softly, God was sitting by a mud puddle, dabbling his fingers in the dirty water and playing with the mud. Because, you see, all things were young then and even God was a youth. Think of him as Amatecutli, the Papa God of the Mexicans, but not yet a papa, only a young and stocky barefoot suntanned god in ragged pants, playing like the village loco in a universe of water and clay, of love and flowers. First he made balls of the clay and pitched them out and up so that they went spinning round and round, forever. So he created the sun, the moon, the planets, and the whole great universe. After a while he grew tired of this sport. Looking into the mud puddle, he saw for the first time his reflection. 
one will make something like that, he said. So he made of clay the figure of a man, giving him a coat and shoes, for God was poor then and thought such things very fine, and making his hair very short, for at the moment God was a novice sculptor and curls and such were beyond him. Then he chanced to breathe on the figure as he was admiring it closely. To his amazement, the instant his breath struck the figure, it stood up onto the palm of his hand and began to march about there, doing a goose step. Smiling gently at Professor Faninowitz, I continued, seeing this, God said to himself, aha, a little German, and reached out and set down the figure in Germany. Next God made a woman. He gave her a long skirt and long wavy hair, for God was gaining skill now, and he put a high comb in her hair and high heels on her shoes. He breathed upon her and she stood up and began to dance most beautifully with much stamping of the feet. Aha, a little Spaniard, he said to himself and he set her down in Spain. Thus God made the Englishman, the Frenchman, the Russian, the Negro, the Hindu, the heathen Chinese, and almost all other breeds of earth. God was growing somewhat tired now and his supply of clay was getting low, so to speed things up he made two male figures at once, giving them only his own simple garb. When he breathed upon them, they sprang up instantly and began to fight with each other. Two little Mexicans, God said, putting them down in Mexico. He had not quite enough clay left for two more figures, so to finish his task, for although a loco, God was a conscientious worker and wasted nothing, he made and dressed one great tall figure. This still left him with some clay, so he made a great wide-brimmed hat for the figure, and chaps for its legs, and fine boots. Two small dabs of clay were left, so he used them to give the boots high heels. Two more dabs of clay of the tiniest were still left, and so that nothing might be lost, God made of them spurs for the boots. He breathed on the figure. Nothing happened. God was startled. Had he made a mistake? Perhaps the magic did not work for large figures. Yet he breathed on the figure again, much harder. God thought he saw the figure stir a little. So he drew a deep breath and blew fiercely on the figure. His breath was like a gale or a tornado. The figure only pulled the brim of his great hat down over his eyes, and crossed his boots, and linking his hands behind his neck, began to snore there where he lay on God's palm. God became very angry. He drew in a tremendous breath, puffed out his cheeks, and breathed upon the figure a breath that was HKE a hurricane of hurricanes, HKE the shock wave of an atomic bomb. Without stirring otherwise at all, the figure pushed back his hat from his face and, looking God straight in the eye, demanded, Who the hell do you think you're spitting at? The laughter that greeted this tale gratified me. Even Chaparral Houston Hunt grinned and pounded his leg. Before the applause had faded, I said loudly to them all, though I made a point of looking at Lamar, so it was in the beginning, and so it still appears to be true of that great land stretching from Nicaragua to the Northwest Territory. Speaking of the latter, I trust I will have your aid in journeying to Amarillo Cuchillo tomorrow. Whatever you want, Scully. To my surprise, it was Sheriff Chase who first answered. Oh, that tale took us Texans off to perfection. Ask anything, Scully. Again to my surprise, it was. Commander Hunt who seconded. Elmo was standing beside him. Sure you don't want to leave tonight, though we'll hate to lose you. Of course, we could have a round of partying first. Tomorrow would be best, I replied, thinking of La Cucaracha. And as for partying, I thank you from hearts. Bottom, yet I fear this one will be all I can take. Although my exoskeleton is tireless even in earth grab, my bone one in its envelope or not. It will be best for me if I spend the night in lonely quiet and rest. I was seeking to set up a 
situation in which it would be easy for me to make my sneak back to the cemetery. And I didn't have too much time, come to think of it. The sun had already set and moonrise would come but two hours later. To one who lives in space near Luna, keeping track of Earth's phases is second nature. She is our month clock. Not altogether lonely, I hope, say your La Cruz, ho ho, the German put down in Germany, very funny, professor. Fanny notes boomed at me heartily, for I hope to spend the night at your side, studying your magnificent exoskeleton and perhaps experimenting, say your Ella Cruz shall spend his time as he sees fit, Governor Lamar cut in with authority. The first demand of hospitality is consideration for, he broke off to get to his feet and turn toward the gringo. Door. The other men copied him. I could see without turning, but just the same I got up as rapidly as possible. Since landing on Terra, I had experienced three great liftings of spirit. The first had been La Cucaracha. The second, Marijuana. The third was the slender, statuesque female we now faced. Oh, I didn't forget La Cucaracha in the least and I remained as firmly determined as before to be beside her at moonrise. But now, suddenly illumined by the sun's silvery afterglow from the clouds above, there was a gorgeous counter-attraction. She was nearly as tall as I and of Juno-esque proportions, but, compared with the male Texans, she was slender. She wore Grecian robes of a pale silvery silk that left an ample area of alabaster shoulders and bosom bare and fell in perfect folds to the floor. I had never seen the like, even on stage, one simply cannot achieve that wonderful classic draping without gravity to help. Her face was at the moment grave and mystic, though subtly seductive. A youthful Athena Artemis, rather than Aphrodite. In one pale hand she held a scroll with silver knobs. Her platinum blonde hair was piled high. Tiny lights winked in it. Under her arching brows, her pale blue eyes were fixed on mine. For a second time on Terra I had lost my heart, something my father tells me a young man can't do too often, provided it doesn't interfere with rehearsals. And he never misses an entrance or a cue. Senor Christopher La Cruz, Governor Lamar said, I wish to introduce to you my dear daughter, the Honorable Rachel Batchel Lamar. Sugar, FBE been waiting for you quite a while. Hush up, Daddy, the goddess said, wrinkling the delectable nose in a miffy grin. To honor our guest properly I had to dart into my Diana costume, she's the Roman moon goddess. Daddy, and then I had to snatch time to dash off. A poem of greeting. I'll read it now, if all you verse-scorning menfolk don't mind. Then without pausing to note whether they did, she struck a pose that I had to admit was most amateurish but the more delightful for that and recited in an elocution-shul voice that occasionally squeaked and or went husky. And invariably found the worst spots to suck in an overobvious breath yet how it all stole the heart, ho, traveler from outer space. How swell to see your sunk cheek face, your somber form that's flagstaff trim, your flashing eye and sword shm limb. She must have got an earlier glimpse of me, I realized, perhaps from an upstairs window, embowered like a Muslim maiden. The poem continued, We've gazed at your abode for years serene or earthly joys and tears, it sails the sky without a sound a million miles above the ground. We never thought we'd get a chance to hold a moon man in our glance, but here you've dropped out of the blue and all of Texas welcomes you. The other men applauded politely, Elmo Fortissimo. As she moved forward toward stage center, a little too fast and coltish for a goddess, but just right for a girl, I swiftly intercepted her, caught hold of her hand, and bowed over it, pressing it briefly to my lips. Then as I stood, flagstaff trim, again, holding her hand up.
moment longer, I said, Miss Lamar, I never have been so moved since when clutched in the arms of my mother, who was doubling as a member of the mob, I first heard my father give Antony's oration. It was borderline truth, though I had been moved in different ways. My father had terrified me in that black toga. Go on, you flatterer, you, she giggled, giving me a playful shove that sat me back on my titanium heel plates. Then her eyes got big. Your pa an actor, they got bigger still. You re an actor too, you stayed one. I shrugged. Oh, an occasional Hamlet, Pierre Gint, Orestes, Cyrano. I could have sworn that for an instant she was going to hug me. Instead she looked me up and down, grinned, and said, I bet you overlapped your ma to either side when she clutched you. Yes and she wrinkled her nose too, I countered. I wet myself. Governor Lamar said, my colleagues and I have a bit of business to finish discussing before dinner. Senor La Cruz, I imagine you and my daughter can entertain each other for the while. You appear to have interests in common. Lamar, Mirabeau Buonaparte, 1798-1859, first vice president, 1836-38, and second president, 183,841, of Texas, a poetry writing, history bemused, personally charming Georgia newspaper editor who arrived in Texas sword in hand, inquired his way to Sam Houston's Little Army, and became one of the heroes of the Battle of San Jacinto, April 21, 1836, where he commanded the cavalry. As president he ousted the Cherokees and Comanches from the infant nation, although Houston was a blood member of the former tribe, secured Texas's recognition by Britain, France, the Lowlands, and the German states, guided her through the Pig War of 1840, created the piratical Texas Navy, set aside vast leagues of land for educational and cultural purposes, achieved for the Lone Star Republic even vaster, credit-building debts, and also conceived the goal of Big Texas, foreshadowing Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. Thumbnail Texans, tell me some more, Captain Skull. But let me light you another reefer. Thank you, Princess. But perhaps you will tell me something for a change. What is moths? Furry butterflies. What is, or butterflies? Butterflies is, oh, they're like two tiny swatches of batik or embroidery flapping along. And you'll likely be seeing a few moths in a few minutes for yourself. We even got lunar ones in honor of your homeland. Go on talking theater of space, that's what interests me. Very well, princess. Yes, acting in three dimensions in. Freefall has its special techniques and requires its special conditions. For instance, upstage lies in all directions from stage center, but so does downstage. You must learn to favor all sections of the audience by rotation in at least two planes, and that requires motivated or surreptitious contact with the other actors on stage. Also, to make an exit, you must take off from another actor or preferably several, and there should be a counterbalancing entrance, unless you use an air jet or are drawn off by fine wire, devices we try to avoid. Ideally, 3D nullgrav acting becomes dramatic ballet with dialogue. Think of Don Juan in Hell, the actors afloat, or of Antony's oration again, with the mob a ragged sphere between the orator and the larger sphere of the audience. Oh, it all sounds so exciting, makes our little theater here seem positively earthbound, even though Daddy insists on spending millions on lighting and special effects and sets, sometimes a heap too much of those. We wanted to do our town the right way but Daddy insisted on building us a real town with the smallest house big as the Petit Trianon. We actors were positively lost among those gingerbread skyscrapers. And I had to bust into tears 17 times before he'd drop his plan to build us a life.
size, practical, moving glacier for skin of our teeth. The last time we put on our town, Princess, we used only six kitchen chairs borrowed from the Circumluna Museum of Terran Domestic Artifacts, all floating, of course, as I mentally float now. Oh, spit, I might have known, but do go on, Captain. Skull, please. Our interests in common had indeed drawn the Honorable Rachel Batchel and me closer together, and in less than ten minutes. Our Princess Captain Skull Personae derived from her conceit that I was Sir Francis Drake reporting the unknown lands of the Pacific to a youthful Queen Elizabeth. We were seated side by side in the gracious dusk on a large couch facing the dark horizon with its mysterious truncated cones across the very faintly shimmering ripples. Of the vast swimming pool Rachel had identified that for me and assured me it was water and we were quite alone. My companion had shooed out all the Mexican houseboys shortly after her father's departure. I was still determined to keep my date with La Cucaracha, after all, she seemed the earthier and more easily had of the twain, but at the moment I was stealing my left arm along the top of the couch behind Rachel Backle's ivory shoulders and also an occasional I wander down. Her delicious frontal décolletage. Wilder is one of our minor favorites among the old playwrights, I meanwhile continued. He rouses and satisfies simply and beautifully our nostalgia for Terra. Other old ones often in our repertory are Ibsen, Bergman, we live a stage his films, Shaw, Wycherley, Moliere, Euripides, Gorky, Chekhov, Brecht, Shakespeare of course, and... Hush, you're making me drool green with envy. Our groups forever trying to stage real serious plays like Macbeth or Pillars of Society or The Gods of the Lightning or Waitin' for Lefty or Manhattan Project or Frisco after the fallout or Uncle Tom's Cabin or Intolerance let Daddy use his hundred millions live stag in that, I say, or street car, but wouldn't you know it? Daddy's forever insistent on another revival of Oklahoma, calling it Texiana, of course, and using Corpus Christi or Texarkana, instead of Kansas City, to make it scan, and five times out of six daddy gets his way. And even then he won't let me play a do Annie, the can't say no girl, always got to have some. Little mech's whore on stilts for that part. Edging my arm a little closer, I remarked, your father seemed to me a most courteous and mild gentleman. Mild. Huh, you should see him when, in turning to make her comment she had suddenly leaned back against my slithering arm. Now with a little scream she bent forward, quickly turning her head to remark, My, that skeleton of yours is awfully chilly, Captain Skull. Can't you take it OFLF even for a little while, while you're on Earth? To my great regret, no, I informed her. Without it, I utterly could not move an arm or leg or lift my head, while a fall, especially without exoskeletal protection, might easily fracture a limb or my skull. I have just begun to realize that when one is eight feet or more tall, one has a lot farther to fall in gravity than, don't explain to me about that. I'm eight foot two myself and I know all about chipped and busted bones. Well, we can't have you fracturing yourself, that's for sure, you spacemen are too precious, so, she gave a small sigh of resignation, I guess I just got to endure the chilliness. And she flopped herself back against my arm before I could have withdrawn it, had I intended to. She turned her face toward mine. Amid the mists of her platinum hair, her eyes were dark pools of wonder in which stars glimmered faintly. Anything for Texas, that's a joke, she said. Go on. Captain Skull, tell me some more. But there are many things I would like you to tell me, chiefly about yourself, I countered, carelessly draping my free hand across my knee so that it happened lightly to touch one of hers. She did not move that leg. I know you. Are a poet, I said. Are you by any chance also a playwright? 
Oh, I got a little old script or two in a secret compartment in my lingerie drawer, she admitted nonchalantly. But don't for worlds whisper a word about them to daddy. One of them's called Houston's a fire and another storm over El Paso, I also would guess that you are named for a poet, I continued. Batchel Lindsay, my, you're brilliant. Captain Skull, I never dreamed anyone on earth, let alone in the sky, remembered anything. About that little old, Chinese nightingale, or, General Booth, Rachel Batchel, I said, leaning toward her, the first poem of any length my father ever taught me was, The Congo. That is, after Chesterton's, Lepanto. Recite Zipantot, she commanded me, but before I could utter, white founts falling. Dot dot quote, she countermanded that with, no, don't. Daddy and his crew'll be back any minute and that poem's too long, much as TDB ravished by it. Let me think, Rachel Batchel, I asked, as my free fingers lightly. Walked up the silvery silk draping her thigh, there is an aspect of the landscape puzzles me, the many conical towers. Oh those, she said impatiently. Those are just oil wells. Grandpa insisted on keeping the derricks for sentimental reasons, but Grandma thought they were unesthetic and made him cover them up with those anti-Macassar lighthouses, I call them. Anti-Macassars were originally doyas to keep hair oil off chair backs, you know. I'd rather the naked derricks again, be Hunster. And the two very much larger and newer towers. I continued, it is sometimes effective, I think, to talk of irrelevant matters while moving closer to a female. Besides, I have a curiosity that operates simultaneously on all levels, and when the sexual is awakened, all the others are too. Only too much larger oil wells. Fact is, I don't know the answer to that myself, Rachel Batchel said, anger in her voice. When they built them six months ago, I asked Daddy, but he put me off with his standard lecture about how women shouldn't interest themselves in science and technology, but culture and religion only. I tried to ride out to them a couple times, but got turned back. Suddenly she sat up straight, though clapping a hand over my free one, which had reached her waist.